This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. That one, that one was all right. Didn't get as many laughs as I thought. But um, I've talked in the last few weeks about the fact that all of us in this room probably have a, a, a lot of opinions on a lot of different things. We have a diversity of opinions on things. Um, a diversity of opinions on any given topic. But I think, I think that probably all of us in here this morning can agree that so far, 2020 has been crazy. Anybody disagree with that? No? Every, everybody in agreement? Get a hand raise. Looks like everybody in here agrees with that. Um, in 2020, you know, we've been dealt this COVID-19. We've had these widespread riots. We've had all these protests. Um, we've had the killer hornets. I don't know what happened to them. Uh, the latest news, if you saw this week, is that there's this major dust storm uh, that originated in the Sahara Desert that's moving across the Atlantic Ocean and it's headed for the East Coast. It's the Sahara Dust Storm. Um, and so who knows what's next uh, on the agenda for 2020, but it's uh, been kind of crazy and I think we can all agree. Uh, we all did just agree that it's been a crazy year so far. And as people have been stowed away in their homes trying to pass the time figuring out what to do, some people have gotten really creative. Uh, we, we've seen everyday folk uh, morph into these like amazing mask makers, for example. We, we've seen lots of people uh, trying to give their hand at giving haircuts, right? I, I let my wife give me a haircut. Um, and we've seen a lot of men getting nervous about getting those haircuts. Um, we've also seen, uh, some of us have also seen this old art form, Reemerge. Uh, it's this French art form. Uh, it's called tableau vivant. Or if you want to sound really pretentious and say it in French, tableau vivant, right? But the, the French phrase tableau vivant means just living picture. Okay? And so let's see if we got it here. All right, this, this living picture game, it used to be played in these Victoria era, Victorian era parlors, uh, among other places. The point of the game was really, really simple. Get a group, a cast, and attempt to recreate some famous painting, some famous portrait or painting the best as you can. And so here's one. Um, this is based on a famous piece from the 1930s, actually. And many of you, just by looking at it, you know exactly what it's playing off of, what it's a reenactment of. Does anyone know the name of this famous piece? Anyone? No? It's called, yeah, I heard somebody say something close. It's called The Farmer and His Wife, right? And it's based off of this really famous uh, piece from the 1930s by an artist named Grant Wood. All right, here's another one. What do you think this portrait is based off of? The Mona Lisa, right? The famous Da Vinci piece, The Mona Lisa. Pretty close. Looks a lot like her. Let's do a couple more. 
Uh, here's the next one. What's this based on? The Last Supper, again, by Da Vinci. But I really love this one, right? That Denny's, Denny's um, addition to The Last Supper is quite interesting. So here's the original. Let's do one more. This one's from recent times. What's it riffing on? Rosie the Riveter. That's right. So you can see the original here. Pretty good. Um, now, when people react, um, to, when, when people reenact these today, or they engage in this uh, tableau vivant, this living picture, they're often doing it really to kind of just be funny, to have fun. But for it to work, for it to be funny, right, the people who see it, they have to make the connection with the original, yeah? Uh, and so when a person sees one of these modern reenactments, it, it will take their mind, it will reflect back to the original. And the new twist on it, like the Denny's Last Supper scene, uh, it's seen as a new twist, it's seen as creative, it's seen as funny. But here's my reason for starting this way and bringing this up. It's this, because when John wrote Revelation 12, and that's what we're going to look at the beginning of that this morning. He was doing something very similar for his original audience. And what I mean is this, is that when, when his original audience or audiences would have heard Revelation 12, they would have heard him read it or preach it, they would have had an experience similar to what you and I just had when we seen these examples of these living pictures or these reenactments. As soon as, they saw the, the, as soon as they saw it, the original source that was lying sort of dormant back in their minds in the background, it comes to life. Most of you have seen the Da Vinci Last Supper, the Rosie the Riveter, uh, the farmer and his wife. You weren't thinking about those until I showed you the pictures, right? And as soon as you saw it, it brought the original back to mind. And so um, that, that's kind of what's going on with Revelation 12. John is, is preaching or writing Revelation 12, but he's giving a new twist to what he's doing here. There's something that's lying in the background. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he's bringing that forward, but also giving a little bit of a new twist to it. But it's so firmly rooted in that original source that there's no way it can be completely new. It's, it's like, for example, when Jesus was speaking to the crowds and he would say something like, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother. And everyone in the crowd listening to him knew where that came from. It came from Genesis. And they knew what it meant. They knew what it was referring to. They knew the source. They also saw, though, that he was bringing something new to it, particularly his authoritative claims as Lord. And I could give you so many other New Testament examples, but hopefully you kind of get the point of what I'm trying to say. When John writes Revelation 12 for him... What rests in the background is Genesis 1 to 4. And I think that as ancient hearers would have known this, that the, the connections, they're kind of easier for us, sort of thousands of years removed, to miss. But his original audience or audiences would have made that connection immediately. And so before we get into day, today's passage, Revelation 12, 1 to 6, I want us to briefly recall what happened in Genesis 1 to 4. And so, um, if, if we see that, what, what's going on there in Genesis 1-4, to then we're more likely to have the living picture 
reemerge or emerge more easily and clearly when we're reading Revelation 12. And as you all know, uh, Revelation 1, or I'm sorry, Genesis 1, right? It's about largely about the creation of the world. There's more to it, but that's the big thing. Genesis 1's about the creation of the world. The first six days, God creates, and on the seventh, God creates, and on the seventh, He rests. And so, for our purposes here, we're especially interested. Now, follow me here. Stick with me. We're especially interested in what's happening right at the start of creation. The Spirit of God, He's hovering over the waters, right? You get that in like verse 2, Genesis 1 to 2. The Spirit of God, He's hovering over the waters. And what this denotes, or what this means, it's talking about the Holy Spirit's creative work in creating the world. Right? So the Holy Spirit had a creative part in bringing the world to creation. But day 4, that's, what's re- that's really significant too, because... It was on that day, day four, that God spoke into existence the sun and the moon and the stars all up in the sky. And that trio of created elements, the sun, the moon, the stars, and you can add a fourth one there, the sky, it's all very, very important. On day six, we move a couple days down, God creates humanity. And as we learn from Genesis chapters two and three, humans... Also Genesis 1, 26 and 7. But humans were created in God's image. The first was a man. And the second, a woman, Eve. And Eve, she's partially formed, as we know, from Adam's side. And so, in Genesis 3... Is this the right slide? In Genesis 3, we find the snake figure. It is the right slide. In Genesis 3, we find the snake figure. And he's later associated with Satan. Scripture talks about him being Satan. And he's attempting to deceive Adam and Eve, right? He's successful. He's successful in that attempt. And there's this special section in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And these three verses, they they have a name that scholars have assigned to them called the Proto-Evangelium. That's our word of the week, by the way. A big fancy word. But you know the word proto, like in prototype. Proto just means like a precursor, like a first thing. And so evangelium comes from, well, we get our word gospel from that. So proto-evangelium is just the precursor to the gospel. And so what Bible scholars and theologians have, have noticed, or some have suggested that this, Genesis 3, 14 to 16, is the setup for what happens later in the gospel. Some would even go as far to say this is the first inkling of the gospel, right? It's the precursor to the gospel. I want to look at these verses and what they say. They say this, And the Lord God said to the snake, Satan, Because you did this, cursed are you from every beast and from every living thing. The field, on the land, you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And enmity between you and between... Enmity is like strife, like hardship. Uh, close to hatred, like an enmity between you and between the woman and between your offspring and between her offspring. It'll bruise your head and you'll strike its heel. To the woman, he said, I shall give you an increase of pain in childbearing. And in pain, you'll bear children. Saying this to Eve. And your longing will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. So these verses, 
Super important to keep in mind uh, as we go forward. And next week's sermon, we'll recall these verses too. We'll draw out a few more connections. But for now, I want you to be aware that John, in Revelation 12, he's drawing heavily on Genesis 1 to 4, but especially these three verses here. And they're going to give shape then to Revelation 12. He's, he's creating, or better yet, recreating a sort of living picture for his original audience. He didn't have a painting, so he had to paint his picture in words. And we who are reading thousands of years later, we're still benefiting from John's uh, painting with words. So we're going to look at Revelation 12, 1 to 6 now, and we're going to read those verses. They say this, And a great sign appeared in the sky. Well, there's the sky, by the way. A woman wearing the sun and the moon beneath her feet and the crown of 12 stars. So right out of the gate, we're making some connection between sky, sun, moon, and stars. But she's wearing this crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant. And she cried while in birth pains. That sounds very familiar with what we just read in Genesis. And being tormented to give birth. Another sign appeared in the sky. And behold, a great dragon of fire having seven heads and ten horns and upon his head seven diadems and his tail swept a third of the stars of the sky and threw them onto the land. And the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth in order that when she would give birth to her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male son. Whoops. Did I get there yet? And she gave birth to a male son. Hey, if, I, if the slides are off, let me know. Um, she gave birth to a male son who's about to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff. And her child was taken before God and before his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was in that place prepared from God in order that there they would nourish her for 1,260 days. And so hopefully as we read, read that, you're making some of the connections. But just in case some are a little fuzzy or easily missed, I just want to walk briefly back through these verses one at a time and draw your attention to some of the important elements of each verse. So I want to look at these again. Let's go back to verse 1, right? And a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman wearing the sun and the moon beneath her feet and the crown of 12 stars on her head. The first thing that we notice is that this is a sign, and a great sign appeared. It's appearing in the sky. It's the first of two signs in these verses, if you notice that. Um, but the location, it's up in the sky. And also connected to the sky, we see those elements, the sun, the moon, and the stars. It sounds familiar because that was just covered in day four of Genesis 1. So John, he's used that imagery from there to bring us kind of right back to the very start of Scripture. Now, on day four, there are no humans yet. That occurs on day 6, as we just said. And then Genesis 2 and 3 unfold, and we read about this woman. She's being formed from Adam's side, and her name is Eve. And if you didn't know, the name Eve in Hebrew means mother of the living, or mother of humanity. That's what Eve means, mother of humanity, mother of the living. So here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. This woman, clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, crown stars on her head. This woman in Revelation 12, 1 is at the core Eve. Okay, now, you should also know 
that there are about 40 different suggestions for who this woman is. There are a lot of scholars and theologians that are arguing a lot, who is this woman? What is our identity? So I could give you about 40 different suggestions for who this is. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spare you. Just know that that discussion is happening. Uh, many Catholics, they're going to say it's Mary. Of course they're going to say it's Mary. Um, uh, if, if it's not Eve, uh, that's likely, I think, the best suggestion that it's Mary. But nowhere in Scripture does Satan himself confront uh, Mary directly. So it's not hearkening back to that part of Mary's story, because that part of Mary's story doesn't necessarily exist. So I'm not sure that's the best suggestion, that it's Mary. Others say, actually, it's not a human being at all, that this woman is representative of the church, which is really, it's kind of odd to me, the idea of the church giving birth to Jesus. That's kind of interesting. Um, all right, and at, at, at present, given these connections back to Genesis, it seems like a reference to Eve to me, and I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment, because it raises the question, right, if the baby that's born here represents Jesus, how can the woman be Eve? That doesn't make any sense, does it? I'm going to get to that. So we have 12.2 again. It says, and she was pregnant, and she cried while in birth pains and being tormented to give birth. Now, knowing what we know, this brings to mind that Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3, 14 to 16. Eve is told by God that part of her deal is that she is going to have pain in childbearing. That's precisely what these verses are saying. I think they're making that connection. We're going to go on to verse 3. It says, And another sign appeared in the sky, and behold, a great dragon of fire, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his head seven diadems. Now, you're probably thinking, I didn't see that anywhere in Genesis. Exactly, it's not there in Genesis. Well, at least partially. What you did, what you see here is this dragon. If we were to skip ahead to Revelation 12, 9 uh, for next week, here's what 12, 9 says. So just a few verses away from this. It says this, John in, in, interprets for us. And he was thrown, he says, the great dragon, the ancient snake, the one called the devil and Satan, the one deceiving the whole inhabited world. He was thrown onto the land and his messengers were thrown with him. So clearly, later in Revelation 12, uh, we learn that the dragon that we're reading about here is actually the snake. Who is the devil? Who is Satan? So it's another very, very important connection. We're going to keep going. 12.4 says uh, of this dragon snake. It says, And his tail swept a third of the stars of the sky, and it threw him onto the land. And the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, in order that when she would give birth to her child, he might devour it. Now this is really interesting stuff. When we see the sky again, now we see the land, we see the stars. In Revelation, John, if we go all the way back to chapter 1, he's using stars to represent the creative work and presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what stars are representative of often in Revelation. And so the Spirit, after all, as we learn in Genesis 1-2, was active in helping create the world. So when we read verse 4, what we should see is this. Satan is attempting to take a stab at, or even more, interrupt the birth of this child. And here's where the question comes up again. But how can Eve, if that's who this woman is, be the mother of Jesus? So there's two things I want, to, I want you to consider. 
One, she's the mother of all humanity. And that, of course, includes Jesus when he's born and becomes human. Two, she's the mother of all humanity, and by virtue of that, the mother of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was out of those 12 tribes that the Messiah would come, and in fact did come, through a little Israelite Jewish girl named Mary. And so theologically speaking, Eve is like the mother of Mary, and in that sense, a mother to Jesus. Or here's another way that scripture scholars uh, talk about it. Eve was a type of Mary. Let me break this down a little bit. And by the way, this is a really important principle when we're reading scripture that I, I want to share with you. It's called typology. Right? In typology, the idea is that you have one earlier thing over here, and it represents something, but then later you have another thing over here, and it represents something. But, so this, this original thing, it's called the type. And the later thing, it's called the antitype. Anti doesn't mean against, it means in place of. So it's the type in place of that one. Right? And so, um, in the same way that, that Elijah, uh, he's a type of John the Baptizer, who's his antitype. Right? Elijah is the type of John the Baptizer. Uh, Eve, she's a type of Mary. And we'll learn next week about the archangel Michael. He's actually a type too. Uh, more on that next week. So that's how Eve, she's viewed as the mother of Jesus here. She's not literally the mom who carried Jesus in her womb, but as the mother of humanity and the mother of the tribes of Israel and the mother of Mary, she is his mother. And some of you, you're from you're different cultures, uh, you have these you know, big families and close-knit family ties. You can probably understand this a little bit better than people who don't, right? Because um, you might have an Eve type in your family, right? Um, a big mama type in your family. And, and she's the mother of all the family, the matriarch of the family. And everyone views her as mama. Right? Whether, whether my birth mom's standing there or not, she's mama to all of us. Right? And even the grandchildren, they view her as mama. And the great-grandchildren, they view her as mama. And it's something similar going on with Eve here in Revelation. She's the mother of Jesus in that way. Not literally physically, but in that way. So we're going to go on to uh, oh, verse 5 here. It says this, and she gave birth to a male son who was about to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff. And her child was taken before God and before his throne. There's no doubt that this is Jesus. In Revelation 2.27, God himself, the Father, gives Jesus this iron staff to rule. And later in Revelation 19.15, Jesus, he's pictured again with this iron staff. So this child's clearly Jesus. But it raises a really important question. I, mean, I was wrestling with this for a long time, uh, trying, trying to figure this out. Why is the birth story of Jesus stuck in the very middle of Revelation? Like we've already had 11 chapters of Jesus as an adult. He's been crucified, resurrected, ascended, and he's Lord. So why, right in the middle... Chapter 12 is the middle of Revelation. Why do we have his birth story here? 
that's a really odd thing, especially if you think of it along the lines of like the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus' birth story is essentially what starts the story. And so why is the tale of his birth right smack in the middle of this pivot chapter of Revelation? Let's hold that question in mind for just a minute. We're going on to 12.6, which is our last verse. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she was in that place prepared from God, in order that there they would nourish her for 1,260 days. Now, this actually does sound like Mary's story. Eve is a type of Mary. She did flee, remember? Mary did flee with Joseph into the wilderness, in a sense, where she and her family, including Jesus, were safe for some time. But this is where you have to think of that living picture phenomenon that I talked about at the very start. The original picture from Genesis sits in the background. And it's brought forward by John. But there's some newness to it. So when you think about how Eve is this type of Mary, like Eve's qualities and story are brought forth, but they're also made a little bit new in the figure of Mary. So the woman is likely Eve, but she's meant to bring Mary to mind too. There's also this number about 1,260. We saw that a few weeks ago in Revelation. It was uh, in chapter 11. It was about uh, the nations. They would rage for 1,260 days, and they would spend that three and a half years, is how much that equals, that time trying to kill the testifier elders. All right. I don't know why that's there. But, <laughs> so, it's pretty cool to, <laughs> we haven't done that, have we? we? We need to bring that back. But, um, so, anyways, there we go, thank you. It's pretty cool, like, to, to be reading the text and to, seeing all these, and to see all these connections and how they work. Connections back to Genesis, connections to other places in Revelation, and so we can do a very close reading of the scripture like this. It's kind of hard work to do this and make sense of it. But we get to see how scripture works. And it's amazing, right? It constantly confirms to me, and in my mind, scripture is a literary masterpiece. It is. It's beautiful. It's amazing how it works together. And this whole scene, in these six verses we just read, they, they have a point. They, they do have a point. They have some points, in fact. But there's more to the story that we're going to pick up on next week. It's only part of it. I want to I briefly, just really briefly, return to this question. Why, halfway into Revelation, do we have the birth story of Jesus? Why, why is this? Why didn't you just mention it up front in chapter 1 and start the story this way? Well, here, here's my view. I think John, he's trying to convey here in the middle of our story the point, this point, that Jesus is, we, we read a couple weeks ago, Jesus' atoning work is finished now. The seventh trumpet blew. The atonement is finished. It succeeded. Completed with that seventh trumpet blast. And because Jesus' atoning work is finished, Satan's terrified. That's the story John's telling. He sees Revelation, uh, if we were to go look at Revelation 12, 12, it says that Satan 
sees now that, quote, he has little time, end quote. And in that little time, that interim period, he's going to strive to intensify his deceitful tactics to manipulate the mind hearts of humans. And what John wants for, uh, is, is for Jesus' bride to be aware of this. John, he's exposing Satan in his last second play tactics. And so John, he recasts or he retells the story along the lines of Genesis. And when the original hearers heard it, they might have been thinking, wow, now because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, there's a new creation. Like that was the original creation, but John's bringing it forward. Now there's a new creation because Jesus' atonement is finished. There's a new creation and a new horizon uh, on, in the works. But, followers of Jesus, you have to be on guard because Satan, while he has the chance, is going to continue to thwart that and lure you away. And that's not only, that's not, not only powerful, it's timely. And, and so there are a couple of points that as we start to draw to a close, I want to bring, bring to this four here. One is this, our own stories, our backstories, they shed light on our present. That's the first point, I'll come back to it. The second is this, there will always be attempted intrusions in the Christian life. And that's why Jesus tells us in the Gospels that we must be ready always at any time. So there's a sense in which we have to always simultaneously be playing offense and defense. Be on the offensive, but also be on the defensive. And I don't need to make a corny sports analogy here. Um, you get the point of that, right? And so, let me go back to that first point, just, just for a moment. Our backstories, they shed light on our present. That, that's a significant point. It's a key to helping us make sense of who we are today and who others are today. Because what happened back there in our lives, it's affected us and it's shaped us, good or bad. It's affected us and shaped us. And realizing how, it gives us insights into our emotions and our actions and our beliefs and the things we hold dearly. It's important in the realm of evangelism, right? In general, as a person, I feel like I can walk up and talk to just about anyone. Sometimes it's tougher than others. But I used to do this kind of street evangelism a lot, right? And I would actually have people filming the street evangelism. And in time, I realized it's not really effective. Like, what, the way, what we're doing is not really effective. And, and I, I learned that longer-lasting fruit seemed to be born of just doing life with people, hearing people out, sitting at the table with them, sitting on the couch with them, sharing a meal with them, and, and hearing their story, who they were back then and how it got them to where they are today. And then when they invite me to share, I do that. But I want to hear them first. And I wasn't befriending people sort of just, just to evangelize them. Uh, that, that comes across as manipulative and, and disingenuous. We don't do that. 
But it was, it was building relationships and remembering that, you know what, God is good at what He does. God's good at what He does. And if I'm patient, if I'm patient, just maybe I'll get to see some fruit be born from this relationship. Look, there are a lot of ways to evangelize, a lot of models for how to do that. There isn't just one. Some ways may be better than others, but screaming at people through a bullhorn right, isn't really that effective. I don't think most people care for that or quite like it. And so I want to encourage you to, to, to be thinking about this evangelism as, as we build relationships with people. And as you, you, you think about it in a way that, man, I just trust that God is good at what he does. And God, God was good at what he was doing, and God's still good at what he does. Some plant, others water. God gets the growth. God's good at what he does. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to work. He doesn't. God doesn't need us. He, he, he simply invites us to join. And by hearing someone's backstory and allowing it to shed light on who they are now, man, that's important and it goes such a long way. And you're, you're not doing that just to evangelize. You want to be an actual friend with, these pe with people. My second point is this. There's always going to be attempted intrusions in the Christian life. And that means we got to be ready at all times to be on offense and defense. When I say being on offense, I don't mean being offensive, like offending, right? Being offense. Um, but to be ready for that kind of thing, there are some things that we need. We need strong, deep-rooted scriptural teaching. We need strong, deep-rooted scriptural preaching. We need to be immersed in scripture. We need to be digging in with peer groups. We need to be digging in with our family and friends. We need to take what's happening in the mind-heart and connect it with our hands and our feet and our mouths daily. Right? I don't want to just, I don't want to be the same old church that you can find on any street corner on the island. Like, I don't want to be just any, the same old church where you can go and get the same thing. I don't want to be that. I, I want us to be a thinking church. Like, Christ Himself, he, he commanded us to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You heard the word mind in there. I've said it before, we, evangelicals, we have a, a long history of being very good at loving God with our hearts. We're typically very passionate about our faith in our Lord. We do a good job at that. And we do a lot of good justice and mercy ministries with our hands. But where evangelicals historically fall short is loving God with the mind. And even in even, evangelicalism in our country in particular, there's this anti-intellectual bent. 
Like, don't, don't make me think. But Christ commanded us to love him with our minds. And he gets the short end of the stick on that so often. So I want to, I, I, I come in here on Sunday mornings, I want to raise the bar a little bit. I don't want to come in and talk down to y'all each Sunday. I want to raise, be raising the bar a little bit. And I realize that's challenging. But I want to encourage you to strive to love God with your mind. Just as well as you do with your heart and your hands. To be a, a fully formed and faithful person in that regard. Let the Spirit do what He does in transforming your mind heart. Renewing your mind heart. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. So we can talk about evangelism, but we also got to talk about discipleship. Those two go together. It's not just about, hey, say you believe in Jesus and you're good to go. It's about, hey, here's this Jesus. Let him transform your heart minds. And look, we're going we're gonna to set up a space for that to happen on Sunday mornings, in peer groups, at church events. going to create an atmosphere for you to become a disciple. And, and being a disciple looks like learning. It looks like studying. It looks like fellowshipping. It looks like eating. It looks like laughing. It looks like potlucking. It looks like praying. It looks like sharing suffering together. It looks like rejoicing. It looks like helping feed people. It looks like helping clothe people. It looks like giving. It looks like singing. It looks like growing. It looks like maturing. It looks like evangelizing. It looks like questioning. It looks like following no matter the cost. That's what a disciple looks like. And to, to be a disciple is to be and to do many things. And as we begin to, to turn some of our attention back to Foster Village now, in the coming weeks and months, it's very important to keep all this in mind. We want to reach the folks who live across the street in our front yard. We want to hear them. We want to get to know their stories. Not, not just so we can evangelize them, but so we can befriend them. And when they see the God who is at work in us, hopefully they'll desire that. We want to share meals with those folks across the street, our neighbors. We want to feed them and sit across the table from them. And when they invite us, we want to be able to share our stories. And as we know, from crazy 2020, man, in life there's always going to be intrusions and interruptions. A number of our plans for, for getting to know our neighbors, we've already had to push them to the side, push pause on them. But you know, we're not going to be distracted. We're going to remain faithful. We're going to press on. And... And we can do that because Jesus' atoning work is complete and that, my friends, makes all the difference in the world. That gives us hope. And let's, 
let's let that be our story every day. And especially as we interact with and love our neighbors across the street here. So that Jesus' life and Jesus' story are a living picture in us. So that when they look at us, that living picture comes to mind. We are a living picture in the image of God.